Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I have a fascinating conversation with Nancy Skolos and Tom Widdell. Nancy and Tom operate as Skolos Widdell, where they are interested in diminishing the boundaries between graphic design and photography through collage three-dimensional images that are influenced by painting, technology, and architecture. The couple are also longtime faculty members at RISD, and I'm pretty sure that they have been mentioned in almost every interview that I've done with the other RISD faculty and RISD alumni. Their influence on the school and the students there is vast, and I was so excited to finally have them on the show. In this episode, we talk about how they met and fell in love while students at Cranbrook and the influence their education there had on their career. We also talk about how design education has changed over the last three decades and how they think about balancing history and innovation, both in their own work and in design education with their students. I learned so much from this conversation. As a somewhat new teacher, I felt like I got so much from talking to Nancy and Tom and just love their work and love how they think about these things. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that I think of as the director's commentary for the podcast. Each month I share additional content, I share episode previews, short essays related to the themes of the podcast, and whatever else happens to be on my mind that month. These memberships really help keep the podcast going. I just appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this truly fascinating conversation with Nancy Skolos and Tom Waddell. I kind of would like to start just to kind of set this up and to frame everything. I'd like to talk about your background a little bit because... In the other interviews that I have seen that, that, or read that you have done, um, I watched the, in preparing for this, I watched the AIGA video, um, and you, you talked about meeting it at Cranbrook, and I would love to actually kind of go back a little bit before that, and just what got both of you to Cranbrook? Where did, did you have an interest in design? What, what were your kind of interests at the time? How did you arrive there at the time that you did? We both have completely different stories leading up to that. So okay, it, great. They might be a little bit involved. Um, go I for think it. maybe Tom should go first. Because I'm older. <laughs> You're from Michigan. So I'm you from were, Michigan, you were yeah. A closer to Cranbrook. I was closer to Cranbrook, yeah. Okay. Well, I started, um, I started in high school. Uh, actually, it was you know, like all kids, you know, I was drawing and painting when I was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper. But uh, I started seriously in high school with architecture. I had a oh. very fortunate uh, situation, which was that the art program was crappy, which is what I really wanted. Mm. But the architecture program was really strong yeah. because they were very interested in getting young men and women out into the workforce. So they had these, all these drafting programs. So I had a very fortunate occurrence in my senior year when I needed a senior project. And most of the time you came up with a whatever, you know, and I had a luck out when the uh, shop teacher from down the hall came in and said, I need somebody to design a house and I want it to be interesting and I want it to be unusual. It's a beach house, et cetera. And I was able to do all the drawings and get the house built Mm-hmm. And it still stands today. So oh, wow. Kind of real 
serious taste of design, but then I had also simultaneously become extremely interested in photography. And so off from high school, I went undergraduate school in photography. Uh, okay. I got an undergraduate degree from the University of Michigan. And I, all the time, all this time that I'm going through undergraduate school, I keep hearing about Cranbrook, you know, this Cranbrook thing. And we, I even went over with a couple of students who are applying to Cranbrook and I never even thought about it. I thought, well, I don't care, you know, and, uh, because they did not have photography. Mm. Uh, in fact, it was it was mostly fine arts stuff, and it was Kathy and Mike McCoy had just, mm-hmm. and I remember my last semester in at Michigan, one of their posters appeared on the wall, and I thought, now that's a weird thing. I haven't seen them <laughs> like, uh, yeah. but I had to work for another year to get some money and start paying off my loans uh, until uh, I did realized that there was a new photo program over at Cranbrook. And so I went over for what was supposed to be a 15-minute interview in three hours and 20 minutes or something because Carl Toth, who was the photography person who had just arrived, um, was really strong in theory. And I thought, now this is really something I've never had before. Mm. So that was my getting to Cranbrook uh, was that uh, with Carl sort of constantly uh, bugging me periodically while I was waiting to go to Cranbrook about showing new work all the time. So it was sort of a real motivation. Yeah. I have, I, I have t- two questions around that. Nancy, I do want to hear your background, but I, I've, you said two things that I just want to pick at a little bit more. Um, you know, as a high school student, you had an interest in both architecture and photography and you yeah. decided on photography. What was that decision like, or what was it about photography that, kind of one out there. Yeah. There was something about, I think, believe it or not, I think it was the romance of the image, mm. you know, something about the image and the immediacy of the image and this sort of fascination with the, you know, we were just getting into that time when images were becoming so powerful yeah. and uh, magazines were still published and you still saw these big photos and these really impressive sort of uh, kind of ex- displays of imaging. And I just thought images ruled, you know, that this yeah. was really a communication uh, method that was strong, that was really, appe- and it just appealed. And of course, as you probably know, starting in the late 60s through the 70s and even in through the 80s, photo departments grew exponentially right. because of the same. So I was sort of picking up on a vibe that um, I think was a popular thing at that point and, okay. and certainly worked uh, for me at that time. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And then my second question around that is going to Cranbrook and hearing about photo theory. Can, yeah. you, can you just talk a little bit more about, I, I have a long love of photography. I've been, I've carried cameras with me, you know, since I was in high school my design work is very, I'm very interested in design theory and, and the history of design. But photography for me has always been a visual thing. Yeah. I, I haven't spent a lot of time with the theory until the last couple of years. Uh, and so I'm, I'm new to it. And so I would love to just hear what, this is a, a weird question, but what was the kind of theory or what was he talking about at that time that grabbed you? Okay, well, Carl was very much, he came from a linguistics background. He came from a literary background. So his 
his thinking about the, what was then, you know, the postmodernist approach to thinking and theories okay. um, were all coming into that and how it affected images. And I'll give an example. His main intent or his main interest was the snapshot. And that whole connection between the snapshot and culture and the family and culture and all of that linked together. And when we started talking about that, I had never even thought about the snapshot as being any kind of an image that you'd even care about. Right. Let us exploit to the point of fine art, you know, <laughs> and it's sort of um, so he was very much uh, a strong advocate for that and encouraged us to find our own direction in terms of the way the camera interfaces with culture and the way it interfaces with with our own personal interests and our own philosophies. Like, are we socially minded? Are we, you know, do we have a particular literary bent or do we have something that's much more, you know, uh, right. general? And it was it was a deep dive into image making as a way of expressing a much bigger kind of umbrella of ideas. So yeah. I think that's really what I got interested in immediately. Yeah. Coming to sort of take a cool picture, isn't that quite? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that's so interesting. I want to come back. I do want to talk. I think there's more to that that we can talk about. But, but Nancy, I'd love to hear how you, you know, your background and how you kind of got to Cranbrook. I'm a second generation designer. My dad was a commercial oh. artist. Oh, nice. And he he went to school on the GI Bill and ended up at University of Cincinnati at the end of it and um, decided to take design. And so he, had, he worked in Cincinnati for some big ad agencies doing packaging and things for Procter & Gamble. And um, then... Um, my mother was like a, a musician and music teacher. So I grew up kind of with a lot of interest in art and music. So I, I was interested in both art and music. Okay. I was a little more interested in the music. It looked, it looked, my dad did everything he could to get me into the art. Like he made me take art every year. He, he encouraged me to take Saturday classes. Mm. I, I did really love visiting his studio on the weekends. Um, you know, like we, I'd see all the airbrushes. I never oh, had crayons. Yeah. I always had like pastels or fancy markers. Yeah. And, um, but my mom's world with the productions and the, and the really elaborate, you know, musical stuff, I just, it really resonated. So I spent most of my high school years practicing the clarinet and I wanted to be a professional clarinetist. Um, and I was sort of like, you know, one of the best clarinetists in all the 88 counties of Ohio that particular year. But in time to audition for music school, I was really shocked at how many other great clarinetists right. in high school came out of the woodwork. And right. um, so um, in a last minute decision, I came home one day, I'd only really applied to three schools, and they're all really hard to get into. And they were near my hometown, Lima, Ohio, we, we moved to Lima when I was about six. Okay. So um I came home one day from school and there was a rejection letter from Oberlin, a rejection letter from Indiana University, and the only one I hadn't heard from was University of Cincinnati, and that had been my worst audition. <laughs> so I to the house and I turned on Mozart's clarinet concerto. My parents weren't home yet. My dog and cat were there, Dachshund and Siamese cat, and I sort of sobbed into the carpeting while they were standing there. And then I went to the phone and called the University of Cincinnati and I said, hey, um, could you take my application and send it over to the design school? Because oh. I just 
did the math in my head. Like, if I can't even get into a school, I'm never going to really get a job. And they said, well, what kind of design do you want? And I'm like, what kind do you have? And <laughs> so they started rattling off, like, your design. I'm like, no. So when they said industrial design, I said yes, because that's what my dad had done. And so anyway, I ended up there, and it was a really intense program. I learned, I stayed there two years. The first year I had all these wonderful exercises in craft and sort of learning to see, like really opened my eyes to just, um, you know, all these exercises they had us do. And then the second year we started going really deep into shop work with like projects with wood that would take like 80 hours. And one of eight projects you had. So uh -huh. it was just basically zombie, like stayed up all night and day. And, um, one day I wandered up to the graphic design floor and there were more zombies there and they had all this like letterset and coffee pots and I thought, right. well, this looks like, this looks maybe more fun. Maybe I'd be happier. And so I tried to switch, but it was really late in the year and they were really, you know, even back then University of Cincinnati was really popular graphic design program. So they couldn't take me. So I went up to the library looking for other schools and I found the Cranbrook catalog and it was like, it was so different looking. It was kind of bleak looking. It was long and thin. And, and then you open it and there was like a, a picture of a bed with no sheets on it. <laughs> like bohemian and artsy. And then I started reading it and it said, no classes, no grade. I'm like, this is for me. So I applied and um, I got accepted because I, I was a really good student at the University of Cincinnati because I worked all the time. So um, that was sort of how I went there. My dad had heard of it because of right. going there and everything. And so he was really interested in me going there. And, and when I went there for my interview, my mom had to like, you know, hold him down so he wouldn't come in. <laughs> but um yeah that's how i ended up there and i really didn't know much of anything even though i'd come from a relatively cultured family you know mm -hmm. I remember them asking me something about andy warhol at the interview and i didn't even know what they were talking about and they they still to this day hold that against me <laughs> when we met you you didn't even know who andy warhol was that's amazing <laughs> I love I actually really like that story for a couple different reasons. I'm I'm I, I don't I you know, I don't I hope this is not too personal of a question, but I'm very curious about that kind of sudden decision to leave music for design. Have you thought about that? How much have you thought about that since? Um, Do you have any <laughs> way too much? Okay. We don't like... have to get into it. <laughs> I mean, on one hand, I look back on that kid and I think you were really smart, you know, like to have that much because, you know, and then on the other hand, part of me was always, you all, you know, you kind of gave up on what you really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So um, 12 years ago, I had a sabbatical for the first time and I started mm -hmm. playing the clarinet again. I hadn't touched it in 30 years because oh, wow. once you get wow. into design, as you know, there's not a lot of extra time. Yeah. And, um, it was really humiliating. I went down to NEC, New England Conservatory, like continuing ed with the little kids on Saturdays. And, um, you know, I could hardly play at all at first. And I kept thinking, why am I doing this? You know, and um, it's been like a 12 year uh, since I've been playing and I'm I'm really, really good now. I mean, I'm better than I was in high school. <laughs> and um, I'm glad that 
I'm really glad I did it because I feel like I finally know I made the right decision. Like I see the obstacles of being a real musician and I know that my gut instinct was right, that I was lacking something. Like I don't have the personality, like the sort of like extrovert love to perform thing. And I also don't have a lot of eye to hand coordination. So um, I think that my instincts are right, and I I love that I have both things in my life at a really high level now. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's been like a a lifetime to figure it out. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. I am curious also about transferring into Cranbrook, and so this was a this is when they had a BFA, right? So you you were getting a BFA at in Cranbrook. Yeah. And were the McCoys, I don't, I don't know much about this era of Krimberg. Were the McCoys overseeing the undergrad department also? Yeah, it was all one department. Okay. Um, there were uh, like, I think there were 20, like about 12 in each 12 class. in each, got about 24 and students. We were totally. mixed. And in yeah. our, I think there were maybe four undergrads altogether oh. out of that. But in the whole school, there were 150 grads there were 150 students and only five of us were undergrads. So a lot of us were in the design okay. program mm. and we all got, and it really was true. There were no classes. There were no grades. Every couple weeks they would assign like a 2d project and a 3d project. Cause it was all mixed together and it worked really well for me. Cause I had a pretty solid, you know, background in both. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could pick and choose what you wanted to do. You could go to the crit or not. Um, but the grad students were so much, um, smarter and so much more mature. It was almost like having like 14 teachers, you know, right. Yeah, I learned so much from them. It was very intimidating. Like, uh, the crits, they were brutal, Yeah, you know, and one of, one of the other undergrads, Kate Weiss, um, and I, we would go to Baskin and Robbins after <laughs> like, almost like we were at a bar and we just keep working. One ice cream cone after another, <laughs> demoralized by this here in the crits. What was it like for you transferring in there? And this is kind of really your first graphic design experience at this point, then, right? What was that? Did, did it feel? Did everything kind of connect for you? Did that feel like the uh, thing you wanted to do? Well, like I say, it was a little bit of everything. Um, the biggest the biggest hurdle was getting over my craft, like how I've been trained to craft everything because they were much more about ideas. Like I'd be sitting there trying to make this perfect model and Mike McCoy, he introduced me to foam core and glue guns. It's like, what are you doing? You know, like just like make something. And um, so yeah, the, the graphic design part was really experimental. You know, like we were just encouraged to, to like, try all kinds of different things. We didn't have nearly the types of things to play with technically, but even the stat machine, we'd, you know, put objects on it. And, um, you know, I remember working on my resume one day and I had a two column grid, which I thought was really innovative. <laughs> it, was, it was all wax, you know, yeah. two pieces of stuff. And Kathy came by and she peeled them up and she put one like way over on the right edge of the page and one on the yeah. left. She's like, that's more interesting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, um, I, you know, I, I really loved, I don't think that type of environments for everyone. I mean, Elliot describes it as like, here's the museum, here's the library, here's the studio, figure it out. You know, yeah. it's like, but for the few people that it's for, it's like the best possible education because it, 
the McCoys were always like looking forward. They were always traveling, looking outside of the school for ideas. And newness was actually what you were taught. You were taught how to have like antenna. Right. Like, and I think that's it's such an innovative way to teach. Like, I, it's hard enough to just teach, let alone teach people to, to be innovators and to really research and think for themselves. Yeah. And I think that was the most valuable thing about the place. Uh, I ended up going to Yale for graphic design just because Cranbrook was so open and I felt like I needed a little more, like, real traditional training. Right. But, um, yeah. I think I should make a note also that Kathy and Mike were at strong advocates in this idea of interdisciplinary mm. because the departments, first of all, all the departments, they're sort of separate, but the reality is you would migrate from one department to another. I would take photographs over to the ceramics department for critique or the painting department or, you know, and people would come in with their work and say, hey, I've been working on this painting. What mm -hmm. do you guys think? And we go through. And um, so the approach they had was everybody was in the same place really right. and so they mixed interiors into in industrial and graphics all in one room mm -hmm. that's kind of how i got involved because i was sort of in the dark room one day and came out to get some light outside and walking across the courtyard and kathy was there and she said hey you you know and i said yeah and she said, you take pictures i said yeah she said oh good we need pictures i said okay <laughs> so i started working with the graphic design department with the graphic design projects at that time and then the industrial design I think is mike had something he said can you take pictures of objects i said sure and so it all became kind of strangely integrated very quickly in right. as much as they allowed uh, I could just go to all the crits and sit in and then start getting involved, which is how I ended up staying a third year okay. just in time because I was already sort of integrated into the whole system and, um, and Nancy was there. So, <laughs> well, that, yeah, that leads, that's exactly what my next question was, was kind of how did, how did both of you start working together or realize that there was, uh, uh, you know, both life and professional collaboration that could happen there? Well, at Karenberg, our, our relationship was primarily romantic. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, such a romantic place. But Tom, you know, insisted on sending me to graduate school. So uh, when I was at Yale, um, the second year I was there, so we're, this is the fourth year of our relationship by now, um, I get the project to do the Yale Symphony posters. So every couple weeks I had to generate a poster and I wanted to see Tom every weekend. So we just thought, well, maybe we should try to do a poster together if we want to actually talk to each other or see each other. So by some magic, you know, it really worked because uh, I, you know, I think Tom, well, he, he can tell you about his collaborative talents. You know, he just sort of is, he has a lot of experience collaborating and he he was he was always like taking we were always taking ideas and pushing them with photography like right from the beginning. Um, one of the first posters was um, for the Firebird Suite, and we went to the hobby store and got all these feathers. And Tom said it'll be really fun because we can project them in like a four by five negative carrier onto Cotolith and. And they'll look like, you know, they'll look like fire. And so, like, we, we just projected all these feathers. And then 
you know, he never said, no, it can't be done. It was always like, yes, and it can be even more, mm. you know. <laughs> so we just, we just, we never had any problem. In the beginning, there was a little more territory, like he had ultimate veto power on the photo mm. and I did on the, oh. on, the, on the type, just so that we each had our own power thing. Mm -hmm. But we never really had to use it. And <laughs> as the years went by, he's just as involved, you know, in the type. It's like we kind of sketched the whole thing up together. It's a big meld because yeah. the advantage at that time, because we'd already known each other three years, right. and we kind of knew we already had this rapport going. So they, so the next jump was, well, let's work together. This is great, and it did. It worked, and the fact that there was a time pressure mm -hmm. um, also helped in, I think, generating a real energy, a spark that we could within a weekend generate something of value that we could use, and that made. That made quite a difference. Yeah, we had uh, to work fast. We had to work fast. Yeah. We had to work precisely, but we also could work with just a bundle of ideas and anything kind of could go. And we just said, yeah, let's do it that way. Yeah, right. okay. Yeah. It's interesting to me. I, what I'm curious about is that you had this kind of collaboration where you were using your photography and you were using your design. You were bringing these together. You were kind of developing a methodology, a process, a style even as a studio built up around this, were people coming to you for that type of work because of they liked what you do? Or what was that, what was that kind of client designer relationship like at that time? The way I'm remembering it is that usually people didn't come to us for what we were doing. We were constantly trying to um, push the boundaries of what the client or what the customer would accept. Mm. Like I wish people would have really, I mean, there were maybe a few times like when, um, Perlator courier saw the fonts poster and wanted a mural in that style. And it was almost kind of, it was almost kind of depressing to have to revisit a project and re kind of remake it in a style. Right. So I, that's the only time I remember that ever exactly happening. Fonts poster. Um, it were the purulator. Yeah, purulator, and but, then um, we did the fonts. Before but we had yeah. a few clients that really understood what we were doing. One of them was the client that let us do the fonts poster. But, um, you know, I tell my students this not to depress them, but, <laughs> like, um, in our whole studio career, there's there have only been, like, two or three clients that really could see what we were doing. You know, like, because mm. we're operating at such a, a level of of being able to, you know, years of being able to see and, and like experimenting with form and there, you know, it's a pretty limited audience. <laughs> right. Sort of like the number of people who can really tell how good a clarinet player really is. <laughs> so we kind of just were doing it for, I don't know what, it'd be interesting to hear Tom's take on it. Well, no, it's true. I think a lot of it was work. I mean, people came for quality work. Is right, the question. right. But there was also a kind of accepted uh, range of what people considered to be um, palatable for their audience. <laughs> so so right. they would have to say, look, uh, the title always needs to be a little bit larger. Uh, we need this, we do this. I mean, we did some semi-experimental book covers. We did some things 
where we could uh, experiment or push charts and graphs a little bit, but it was always with the idea that it needed to be clear, it needed to communicate, and despite mm -hmm. the typographic experiments that were raging uh, in the schools, uh, that was not accepted. You know, that was just not where people were going yet. And of course, I think corporations and companies and even small businesses sort of go ahead forward with a rear view mirror outlook on graphics. <laughs> yeah. Who look back and say, you know, that worked and we know that worked. So now we can have ours look like that. And, right. And very few come and say, you know what, I just need something that absolutely sets me apart and just goes crazy. And I think one of the few clients that we did have was the Lyceum Fellowship, which mm. is what we see a lot of our posters. Um, they were architects. It wasn't that way at first, really. They were nervous, like most clients, uh, about how far we'd push it. Uh, yeah, but John I McKee said it was like jumping off a high dive and hoping the pool was Hoping there. the pool was there. <laughs> so he kind of, he was, he, but he understood architecture and he understood that architecture was changing and that it, it, it involved uh, more theory in architecture as we get into the 80s and 90s. You know, there's a lot of publications and he's aware of these things. And so he understands that, and especially for the audience that we were making these posters for, which were students, you know, this was a student competition that right. I see was dealing with. He, the allowance, the, the tolerance level was quite high. And of course, pretty soon we could raise that bar up quite a ways uh, and say, you know, we're going to jump over the big, the big uh, <laughs> thing because we're we're going to, you know, make this really crazy. And we're to the point now. I mean, after thirty, how many years? Yeah, it's it's thirty-two. <laughs> over thirty years, we've been making these posters, and now it's just they just send us the program and just say, okay, make it. Right. And nobody even, I mean, they, yeah, even they never see it. They don't say anything. No, because we're we're you know it's that that rapport has now been so established. But, oh, that's interesting. Um, and the the other project that I can't believe I forgot is the Farrington guitar book, Nicholas Calloway. Mm. This was one another one of the only times someone called us particularly for what we do, and it was it was the early '90s, and he said he'd been following our work since the Firebird poster we did at <laughs> Yale, but he figured we were so busy that we wouldn't be. Oh wow. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. So that was a really amazing project, especially because the guitars were so beautiful. Because a lot of times we were trying, mm. we had to use our imagination to make some really boring thing like accounting spreadsheets. <laughs> exciting. And here we had these beautiful objects. And, it, and we, you know, I think one reason that we focused so much on composition in our early work is because the subjects weren't really that exciting right. but yeah what exciting subject then you can really get into the meaning more um well there there were there were a few things that could be done um well let me backtrack a little bit the most interesting moment i think is uh in the farrington interview uh nicholas okay. calloway and his his assistant and danny farrington himself who's the guitar maker showed up at the studio and <laughs> And, and, you know, we had arranged a meeting and we were all, you know, kind of like, well, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, they came in and they would ask questions. They would say, well, do, do either of you play guitar? And we'd say no. And it's 
do you know anything about guitars? And we'd say no. And do you know anything about the construction of guitars? We'd say no. And then they would name these performers. Now, some of them we had heard of, but we hadn't really – we were a little more classically inclined. Mm, so yeah. those rock stuff, we kind of knew, yeah, okay, yeah, I sort of know. But most of the time we'd just say, no, I don't really know the music. <laughs> So no was our our answer, and of course in my mind I'm thinking sitting there, this is not going well. Right. This is right. this is such a bomb that that I can see these guys any minute now walking out the door saying thanks, and then they said, well, we're we've inter- we're interviewing I don't know seven or eight studios, however many they were doing, and and they went through this whole thing, and and finally Danny just sat there and said, you know what, these guys are perfect, and it was like <laughs> so we got the job on the spot, which was not supposed to happen. Right. Yeah. And reason for it of course is something i hadn't thought of which is because we didn't know anything right meant that we were not going to give them what was already being done in the world of music and already being done in the publication world that we were going to do something completely different and that's what he wanted and i said oh my god so we got this job so it's like you suddenly get this job going oh my god now we got to actually do this thing you know (laughs) And with a little help from our friends, you know, up at Eastman Kodak, uh, it made quite a difference in how that book was done and the innovative sort of technical breakthroughs we were able to do because we didn't know anything and didn't know anything about, you know, the computer really. And we didn't really know anything about it. So it was sort of like ignorance is absolutely bliss because you could just go in and say, I don't know anything about this thing, but let's figure it out. And we (laughs) and and the same thing was true of the um, – and Nancy points out wisely that the guitars were so gorgeous, the forms were so wonderful that we would respond to those forms. And mm-hmm. and we were, of course, buying music to to understand the musician and even to the point where Danny would call us on the phone and sing songs over the phone uh, to, to inform us as to <laughs> – the nuances of the music, yeah. The but we went ahead. So, oh, I love that. And you know, it's interesting. You you talk about how clients, especially, and just kind of people look at design through a rearview mirror, and that goes. It reminds me of what you were talking about earlier about the McCoys really being interested in the new. And mm-hmm. maybe this is a good transition to talk about teaching a little bit because I'm really interested in how. As as myself, an, a fairly new teacher, only been teaching for, you know, three years or so, that's kind of my biggest question is, how, how do I teach students kind of what they need to know to be a designer in the world, but also not fall back on just everything that's been done before and to kind of find what they're interested in in design and how they can kind of find new forms, new ideas, new techniques, new processes. And so I guess this is such a big question because I'm not, I'm not going to ask you, how do you do that? Um, but, but maybe the question is, you know, as two people who have been teaching for so long, how has that, those ideas evolved for you around how to kind of teach design in this kind of consistently new and different way while also teaching the foundation, I guess. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I I find myself constantly trying to remember 
you know, being at Cranbrook and what it felt like, especially when I went from Cranbrook to Yale, where I'd been in a place where we were all about looking forward. And then Yale was all about looking backward, like mm. history and the tenets of design. And, you know, I was so frustrated there. You know, I just, at I Yale, you were. Yeah, I tried to okay. get my money back after the first two weeks. <laughs> and um, it was too late. But, but, but so I remember what it was like to feel like I didn't want to dwell on the past. I only wanted to know what I could do new. Mm -hmm. And so, but now when I look back on my education, I mean, I love the attitude that I learned at Cranbrook to experiment and to be intuitive. But I also, the things that have helped sustain me through time have been some of those really boring things I learned at Yale. I thought I was right. ready to want my money back. Right. That's the hardest thing to balance and to convince the students that I'm not trying to hold them back, but I'm trying to make sure they get the stuff that lasts. And and all the things about the future now are so different from what we were looking at. I mean, when we were students, we were looking so much at architecture and form. Right. And it's it's the whole world of media and internet and and the students are way more savvy with all that than I am. <laughs> so um, I'm just trying to tap into their energy. And, um, you know, luckily, uh, our school, our graphic design department, I don't know if you've interviewed anyone, you know, like John Caserta. Or yep, any of yep. I talked to John. I've talked to uh, Paul Soelis uh, yeah, and James, so James Goggin. Yeah. So you've probably heard a lot about the, the core studios that yep. are all inquiry based. And that's been a really uh, wonderful innovation for the faculty and the students because, uh, you know, they can all come at design through the series of questions. And uh, we all, the faculty and the students, we all kind of discover things together. Mm. So um, I'm newly back to teaching after being away from the department for five years because I was the dean for three and a half and then I went on sabbatical for a year. So <laughs> the last four weeks have been pretty intense for me. Like I've, I've had, you know, this cold. I had like this giant sty in my eye. I'm just like a total oh, no. nerves, like hoping that I can, you know, yeah. uh, meet the challenge. But I feel really invigorated by it. You know, it's been a, a wonderful month so far. Mm. <laughs> that's good but tom what do you how do you deal with this um well it's the same you know it is the problem of old and new and i think it's absolutely essential to have some you know a sense of history a sense of process as it ramped up into other processes or what that relationship is i think the mistake we tend to make is we jump on what's trendy and cool yeah and yeah that there really has to be, you have to have tools that work. And I, I mean, architecture is probably the perfect example of you go down and you read the architecture curriculum and you realize that they're doing, you know, they could be doing some experimental class in, in open spaces for uh, public access <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. You're looking, over and seeing that they're also taking structures and systems and uh, that kind of thing so that you can't build a building in reality unless you understand 
how it's going to go together, you know, in some sense of engineering and some sense of, of structure as it relates to form. So you can experiment all afternoon with form and you can experiment all afternoon with theory and how it works in the public space or the private space. But the reality is there's a whole gob of courses that tell you this is how it's really done in a yeah. you have gravity to contend with. And you've got these things. So I don't, uh, I find it, unfortunately, I think that, um, now, I would say design schools are all, almost going to have to go to a five-year plan just to get mm. everything in because it's so diverse in its in the opportunities that are available and right. it's so extensive in the technologies that that in order to cover it and feel now you you know internships certainly and those kinds of things help um so it's it's a start i mean we really have to look at school as just a start we can't say you right. know you want to graduate you're such a finished product i think that theory's gone i don't yeah. think you're a finished product at all i think it's it's rough hewn, you know, lumber that's going to make something somewhere. But yeah, um, and that's fine. I, I think that's kind of how we felt when we graduated. You know, we kind of knew some stuff, but the reality is, we had some real hard knocks learning events. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have. Yeah, it's so interesting to me, and I have two. I, what I think are going to be two questions. I'm going to try to ask them in a clear way. But you know, talking about. When you mentioned like not just jumping on trends, I think is something that's really important. And I see this in my own students a lot. And it was the biggest shock to me when I started teaching. And and it was the first time I felt like I was old. <laughs> and I'm not I'm not that old. I'm only you know, ten years older than than my students in most cases. How different the the I was surprised at how different they consume design in the world and when I was their age I loved design history and I loved kind of looking at these designers and and design culture and I knew the names of you know quote-unquote famous designers and that's at least with a lot of my students that's not the case anymore they're they're seeing design on Instagram and on Pinterest and they often don't know the names of designers or where this stuff comes from and so it becomes you know, they're much more aware of visual trends, but the context and the the content is often erased because it's, you know, these kind of quick scrolling in Instagram. And at first I was really kind of angry about that. And I thought that it was, you know, a bad thing. But part of me is also think that it's kind of interesting that they're seeing design this way and they're just kind of taking from all sorts of different things. And I really don't know how I feel about it. And so I guess the question that I'm kind of asking is, do you have thoughts on that? Because this is a, a, a new thing even, you know, since I was in school. And I'm curious how s the students have changed and their kind of awareness of design has changed. Has that had to change how you think about teaching these things? You know, you know what I mean? That was a weird way yeah, to phrase I that. I, I think it's a cr quite a question because it's true. I think the consumption was always there. Mm. In other words, going to the library in my day and opening books and just looking at pictures was mm -hmm. certainly something we did. But of course, the rate of consumption was, right. was model T level compared to what <laughs> we're doing now. Right. Um, you know, and, and that, but it did influence your thinking. You kind of got into rhythms. You got into, into responsive. It was a responsive 
uh, quality that you had. And then you went and created because you had this stuff in your head, but it mm -hmm. wasn't sorted out necessarily. We did have, and I agree, more hero, you know, because the way history was taught and right. the way things were presented, it was a little bit more of the hero as as uh, as dominant figure, you know. Right. Here's Paul Rand, and everybody should bow yep. down, you know, and not question uh, what that was. Although I think at Cranbrook that changed a bit once we were there because things started being questioned every yeah. day. <laughs> um, is that, you know, is that really good? No, that's stupid, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but it was critical analysis. It wasn't just cool, I like it, I don't know, I don't like it. You know, it was, it was really a, a, a time to sort of pause and consider. I think that that rate of consumption happens, but I think the better students, the students who are really going to get into this thing and not just pass through and, and do something else in their life are going to be the student who will stop and mm -hmm. consider. Maybe they don't attach names, and but they will attempt to sort of make a uh, contextual uh, connection with what they're looking at. So I, uh, I have a friend who gives an exercise where he says, I want you right now in this classroom to get out your computers and I want you all to select like 50 pieces of design. Just mm -hmm. grab them from anywhere and let's put them together. But then you have to look at them carefully. You know, then we're going to do an analysis. Oh, Why grab these things and say, let's look. And this is in preparation prior to a project. So, so I want you to kind of fill yourself up. It's almost like gluttony of image. Um, fill yourself up. Do not worry about the name. Do not worry about the, you know, let's just do it. And then we're going to sort these things out in terms of context and what, what you know, and really begin to kind of yeah. parse this out. And I thought that was a really interesting exercise in class exercise that challenges people to say, stop and look. And it, it kind of reflects, I think, um, Another uh, interesting uh, approach, and I wish I could remember this woman's name, who's wonderful at Harvard, um, and I will remember it at some point, who's a uh, hist art history teacher at Harvard, and she takes her students to the museum and assigns, or they pick, a painting. And they're required to sit there for three hours and make notes about the painting. Oh, I heard about this, I think. Yeah. Yes. And she's, uh, I want to think it's, I'll look her up. This sounds really and, familiar. Yeah, very familiar. And I thought this, now this is brilliance because it, 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 the amount of information that you finally glean from this painting, she's picking paintings because she teaches painting, but or art history in painting. But the thing that's interesting is this contemplative moment yeah. that you force people into to say, sit there, do not look at your phone. You're not going to have your computer. You're not going to have anything but your, but a pad of paper, a pen and your eyes and take a look at these things and really consider what's going on in this thing and then you can get into why it was painted who painted it, and all that contextual stuff but what's in the frame what's framed within this structure is what you're looking at carefully and and then extending that to the representations like what's in the picture and what does it mean you know and why yeah. did it that then and i think that is still possible but i think it's it's got to be a moment where you literally have to take focus and say we've got to cut the distractions and we do have to focus and if you can get students to focus 
then I think they're going to have a chance. And then they can consume as much as they want, but they'll still taste it. It's like talking to a chef who says, right. I think that's so interesting and, and really insightful. And now that you say it, it seems very obvious, <laughs> actually, you know, because I'm thinking about, you know, when I was kind of looking at my students and thinking like, oh, you know, it was better when I was in school and we knew the names of these people and and that was somehow better. But it also there was still no questioning. It was hero, like you say. Yeah. And so we just looked at those as this is good. And in a way, that's no different than looking on Instagram or Pinterest and seeing this and just kind of saying this is good, that you need that moment where you step back and really reflect on some of this. And then that's how you start to move forward. I, I yeah. love that. Yeah. Um, and I'm a strong believer in history, you know, looking at history. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and yes, okay, there's all these debates about history and it's it's this way or it's that way. It's that. But you know what? If you're really an advocate of history, how it's presented will not dissuade you from finding other ways right. to look at it. And I think this is the deception of the argument is that there's we're only presenting it one larger than that now and you can show one direction all day long but the reality is they're going to find the other 10 alternatives and mm -hmm. it's going to happen yeah so i don't i'm not afraid of history as a as a kind of way of looking at things i'm curious how else teaching has changed over the course of of your careers and you know thinking about just how much a designer can do now and this idea that it could be a five-year program and that there are all these different avenues. Are there other kind of like big changes that you've had to kind of work through in preparing students, but then also kind of, you know, teaching them how to think about design and, and, you know, the tools and also just the theories and the ideas and the, the process. What, what are some of those big changes that you had to kind of work through? Tech. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the tech, the tech that's the one. Yeah, I mean, that would have been the obvious one. Yeah. You know, since 84, uh, it would be the first, yeah. you know, sort of shock of the new uh, and uh, working up that way. But I think, you know, that there's always been some kind of technology, whether it was, you know, uh, letterpress and students were always baffled by, you know, what the heck, why am I putting it in reverse and mm -hmm. all of that. Um the 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 loss of a kind of hands-on skill level yeah, uh, hand yeah. to eye business is is sort of undermining I think that's one of the joys of teaching at at, uh, at RISD because it, you know I carry that Cranbrook thing forward where we kind of used our hands and we also used our eyes and we also and I like that idea that's one of the reasons I think we still sort of make models and photograph them because we just like <laughs> yeah. hands you know it's like and I think there's a there is a kind of analog digital binary system going on at RISD where students will just say to me I don't want to do this on the computer can I just do it I go yeah yeah just <laughs> no yeah. I don't care it's like use use what you want to do that seems appropriate and I think it gives them a more um, flexible approach to, to problem solving uh, when they have that sense that any of these forms old or new analog or digital can be used to to push the idea further and i think that's and even blended of course um 
that's when it gets to be very exciting. But I think that initial technical invasion mm-hmm. was so shocking and so uh, disruptive to how the hell are we going to use this thing? Yeah. One thing I've noticed in my brief reentry period is that even in the five years I was gone, the the amounts of technology the students can mm. be interested in, they've just multiplied. Like even even for a like one task, there are like three or four different things you can do, you know, like sketch or XD or yeah. or webflow and like <laughs> yeah. can like they can know all of them or you could even if you wanted to teach all of them. So what's kind of fun is that each of them just, they just figure it out. Like they're, you know, they might be, they, they'll just decide to do cinema 4d yeah. and they'll figure it out in like a week or two. And like it's, and I've sort of given up trying. I've, I've been also doing my own speed learning on the side just cause it's fun. And just to try to get in the mindset of what their life must be like. Yeah. Um, but it's, it is, it's more like a mindset now than, than it is like knowing a certain technology. It's just this sort of curiosity and where there's a will, there's a way. Has teaching changed your own practice or how has, how has kind of being in the classroom and constantly learning from your students also, how is that reflected back into the work that you're doing? Well, I think that, um, you know, I'm sure people answer this pretty similarly, but just the act of explaining things really helps you learn to explain to yourself what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And also just RISD, um, it was, you know, after being at Cincinnati, Cranbrook, Yale, (laughs) like RISD was just um, a whole different approach. You know, like it was at the time we started teaching, we were doing a lot of courses that were very theoretical, like semiotics. And, you know, we had to really ramp up for that. But that whole idea of like embedding symbolism into your work mm-hmm. and then also being able to explain your work to clients in terms of what it means rather than what it looks like, since as I was saying before, they couldn't really see it anyway. Um, it really helped us, you know, be more effective with client work, you know, and also, yeah. you know, you know, what is it? What are we trying to say? What are they trying to say? How do we say it best? and still be really artful about it. Um, it, I mean, teaching at RISD is probably the best of all of my education and it still is, you know, it just, it's always changing and it's always just ideas and being in the middle of an art school too. It it has an artful approach, you know, like (laughs) when I was the Dean, you know, all the departments I was in, you know, looking at watching classes, uh, it was always, there was always that art, in the air um, yeah. that really unique how how connected is teaching to your design work like your own practice are those how much overlap is there between kind of things you're working through in the studio and things you're working through in the classroom or vice versa do those start to talk to each other uh, well I think what Nancy was saying is is true I think it's a matter of explaining you know, what you're doing. And, and I think, um, we kind of explain it to ourselves the same way I might explain it to a student, um, Mm. in terms of what, you know, what are we doing now? I don't, but the danger I think is always that you become too, um, I think of the proper word here, you become 
too deliberate in the way you put things together so that you're creating almost like you're explaining to yourself as you make it. And I find that <laughs> right. a burden. I find that that's a problem. That's when it gets, it gets to be um, uh, ineffective. And so what we almost have to do is go back to those days of being naive and wonderful, you know, yeah. like ignorance is bliss kind of approach because you have to kind of forget everything you know and simply operate a bit yes. in this best world of intuitive and and sort of um, predictable. And, and so I don't find, uh, I find it potentially that the ability to look back or during or, you know, at a points in the process and explain it to yourself is good. But I don't want to be overly burdened with that kind of classroom professor approach. Yeah. <laughs> While working. Yeah. You can become your own worst student, you know. Like, yeah. It's bad. Yeah, it's bad. You can become, you can become yeah. weighted down by these, uh, these words. And I think that one of the problems I see in some of the art that I'm looking at, especially at school, is, you know, the form making can be really weak. The typography can be less considered, the, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera, because the explanation is so damn good. You know, <laughs> yes. Oh, that's such a brilliant yeah. use of, of the theories that we, you know, and, and I, this is something I always say, and it, it, it's almost, and, and it's too much graduate school. Yeah. I, I, I find that we have to, well, it's like going to the gym, graduate school is like going to the gym, building up your muscles, and now you're going to run the race, but you can't use the same techniques from the gym to one right. the marathon. You have to, you have to kind of give yourself over to something that's greater. And I think that that is a problem for teachers who are too deliberate in their explanations and too overly considered in the work and the student too you know the student gets very involved and i can talk your arm off but when i put it up in the hallway and nobody gets it you know i don't right. care that's not the way it should work i think there's got to be a little bit more pragmatics injected in there uh and and so that i think that's going to be the next phase is figuring out that balance uh, for I the student I think back. you are exactly right. And I am completely guilty of <laughs> everything that you've just said. And I've, I've been thinking both in, in my own work and as a teacher that I almost over indexed on the theory and the ideas that I stopped thinking about the, the form and the aesthetics. And I've been trying to kind of go back to when I was an undergraduate student and how little I knew about the theory and I would just make things for the fun of making things and how much more interesting that was and how can I bring those two sides together is something that's been on my mind a lot the past couple of months and so it was great to kind of hear you hear you that's articulate that. That's the next big challenge in education. It really is. You know, the technology phase is is running its way out in terms of refinement. I mean, we'll have hundreds of new programs and devices and everything else, but effectively it's the same stuff. You know, mm -hmm. students are absorbing it at an alarming rate, which is great. We absorb it faster as well. Um, so that that isn't the shock of education. The shock of education is, can we get back to a point where, as you say, you just have the fun of making something. You don't worry about yeah. ex overly explaining it or justifying it or any of that stuff. And I think that 
will be a real, you know, next five to 10 year challenge for educators. My last question, I'm, I'm curious, you've, you've mentioned some people who have, uh, you know, kind of have influenced you. But the last question, and this is something I ask everybody is, you know, who are the the either the the designers or the authors or what are the books or like who are the people that have really influenced you and the way that both of you think about your work as designers as photographers as teachers as as kind of makers in the world where who are the people you find yourself kind of returning to again and again um, <laughs> <laughs> well it's not really my references aren't very fashionable at, at that's okay <laughs> They're mostly European modernist things, okay. um, but I have to be honest that what I still, you know, really keep coming back to is a lot of the ideas from modern mm. painting. Um, you know, I feel like there's so much there that's yet to be exploited in terms of just two-dimensional design, mm. simultaneity, abstraction, you know, composition balance. Uh, so, cause I really like, I really like abstraction. Mm. I like geometry. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's the music influence. I just real I like sensation. I'm not really that into narrative. So I, I yeah. always look at music. I always look at color. I look at things that are, that are like distilled down into just a sensation. And, um, that's what I, I'm the most excited about. I always joke that when I'm in the nursing home, as long as I have like a color aid pack, <laughs> happy just looking at it. I love that. Color each day and just stare at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you get a lot of them that way too. I know. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, we're all victims. I say victims uh, of our education. This is why being a teacher is so important. Um, and it is true that I can go back in time and remember the first time I saw like a Frank Lloyd Wright point. Mm -hmm and go, whoa, that was so amazing. And, and getting this sense of someone who is, and I think it was the level of commitment mm -hmm. and the level of focus, I, I, whether it's his drawings or someone else's and, and discovering the depth of what was there. You know, I go back to that and certainly I teach a class in poster design and, you know, I'm looking at Charest and I'm looking mm -hmm. at the, the designers, 19th century designers in this early 20th century phenomena, which was the kind of big communication jump at the time um and how all those people worked to get this level of communication and this as nancy said a sort of exuberance on two-dimensional surfaces which was pretty good you know they really you you could get excited i could see in the streets and still can uh with even you know animated uh, posters now but but it's a it's that level of commitment from those individuals um, that makes quite a difference. So I always go back. It's kind of like the ability to oscillate between really old stuff and really, <laughs> yeah. your, your brain is moving, you know, ahead. And I think that was something still a holdover from Cranbrook. Mm. That is exactly, I mean, they were pushing for the new, but they also, the old was lurking around because the right. Saracens were always there. Right, know? right. And that you never forgot. Yeah. That that level of detail, that level of commitment, you never forgot. Yeah. This is like a perfect way to kind of sum up 
this whole conversation. And, you know, Nancy and Tom, I'm a, I'm a fan of the way you, you both think about this. And this was such a interesting and, and honestly very helpful conversation <laughs> for me. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. This episode was recorded on October 7th, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.